Hi, I'm Dr. Shiloh. And I am Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is a true crime documentary review on Worst Roommate Ever. In our last episode, we covered the psychiatric diagnosis of body dysmorphic disorder or BDD, an experience in which you can't stop thinking or fixating on one or more perceived defects or flaws in your appearance, a flaw that is minor or can't be seen by others. We covered associated behaviors, treatments, and explored the research into its roots stemming from trauma. We also covered a case in which a woman crippled by BDD turned to violent means to seek revenge for those that she thought were responsible for her perceived physical abnormality. Yeah, what an episode. But today we have a documentary review for you. I was going to say maybe something a little lighter, but... Not really. But first, what are we watching, listening, reading this month? Oh, right. What are you? Start us off. I've been listening to two new podcasts. Another one from the LAist, which I just love. It's called Party Cruise, The Untold Story. It's about LA's underground party scene for like really from, this is more like 2000s, but really in the Latinx teen and young adult population here in Los Angeles. And it also follows the story of a young girl connected to this party crew scene that was murdered and it's still unsolved. And I've realized my new favorite podcast genre is sort of true crime adjacent, where it's like more about a particular time, more about that culture, perhaps of, you know, a city or part of the country, but then has this little side thread of true crime to it rather than just all being about that. So that's awesome. I've listened to that. It's it's just one season, handful of episodes, really enjoyed it. Wait, but what's that called? Party Cruise, The Untold Story. Oh, that one. Okay. I was confused. <laughs> so, oh, I um, see. The, 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 the true crime adjacency is that that unsolved murder. Got it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Stop the Killing is the other podcast I'm listening to. It has a true crime podcaster, Sarah Ferris, who is kind of the, I don't know, lead host, if you will, but she kind of facilitates the narrative and she's joined each episode by Catherine Schweit, who's a former FBI agent who was in charge of the active shooter unit. Oh, wow. And investigating and conducting research in that area. So So it's really cool. They have a great formula. Each episode, Catherine brings a different mass shooting to talk about. She gives a brief overview, then they discuss aspects of that particular shooting. And then they talk about the background of the shooter ending always with some lessons learned, some other takeaways, and then stories of heroic bravery for each of these with some of the survivors. But binging it, there's a lot there. And we are slated to have them join us on our live stream for May because they're also going to be at CrimeCon UK and it would be a nice little lead up for us to have them on as guests to talk about the show. I think our audience would love it. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, let's make that happen. As far as what I'm watching or listening to, Dan and I finally got some actual time to take a mini break and go went down to Palm Springs for a couple of days for Easter. And we lined up four hours of uninterrupted listening pleasure. We listened to the Stephanie Miller show, which is a political newscast. (laughs) and hilarious and frangela which i've talked about before the frangela 
the oh, duo yeah. is hilarious. They were great. We listened just back to back episodes, just laughing so hard. You think you're going to like cause a wreck <laughs> or something. And then as far as like what I'm watching, I'm enjoying the second season of Schmigadoon, which is called Schmicago. I can't believe you haven't heard of it. What it is, is a that? Take-off. It's a takeoff on Broadway musicals. Yeah. So it stars Cecily Strong from Saturday Night Live and Keegan-Michael uh-huh. Key from Key and Peele. Mm-hmm. And they're a married couple. And like what happens in some Broadway musicals, they are transported to a land of music. <laughs> and so that first season was a combination of like Carousel, Brigadoon, Oklahoma, all of these oh sort of gosh. classic golden age musicals. And then yeah. second season, they get transported to Chicago. So it's a, like <laughs> oh all of these musicals that came out on Broadway in the 70s, all thrown together yeah. to like Chicago, Annie, Guys and Dolls. It's oh my gosh. really hilarious. And there's what a lot of on? in jokes. It's on Apple, I think. Oh, that's why I haven't seen it. I don't have Apple TV anymore. I was like, what? how are you hiding this from me? And it's Season two, what? Oh, I'll see if I can oh, get you some bootlegs. Oh, fun. I didn't say that, Feds. I did not oh, say that. No, Feds, no. I would never FBI do that. FBI warning, FBI warning. <laughs> we, re- we respect artists' rights. Yes, absolutely. But this month's yep. doc, it's going to be a little different because this is one of the times where we both had very strong reactions and we're both completely on the same page, but we'll save that to our brains rating, right? Oh, so, if we can. I don't know. Yeah. This might just be an episode making fun of it. <laughs> Well, there you go. So let me, let me try and set it up and then we'll just, it will throw all sheets to the wind. So this month we are reviewing and sharing with you the Netflix limited episode docuseries entitled Worst Roommate Ever. And this series is comprised of four vignettes or stories about roommates with clearly dangerous and criminal motives. The last vignette or criminal case is divided into two episodes. Mm. These Mm -hmm. clearly awful people create true nightmares for their victims, many of whom are still around and interviewed for each segment. And the cases center on perpetrators Dorothea Puente, a well-known case from Northern California in the 70s and 80s, as well as Casey Joy, Yusef Kater, also known as Joseph Maria, and Jameson Bachman, a.k.a. Jed Creek. Yes, so interestingly enough, Rotten Tomatoes does not have a score yet on this series, although the audience score is currently at 50%, maybe by the end of this, we'll be calling it worst shroommate ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And usually we start with a plot synopsis at this point, but that horrible title, worst roommate ever, just gives it all up. So I think we should just jump into these four stories. Yeah. So the first episode is called Call Me Grandma. And what I found really interesting about this is that of all the episodes that make up the series, Netflix starts off with the one that is the most egregious and prolific killer. And Dorothea, yeah. clearly from the outset, I mean, she's also a very famous case. Most people out here in California have heard of her before, specifically because it is a number of victims. She does meet the criteria to be a serial killer, which in women is very, very rare. But she literally hits all the points for being a female serial killer, particularly in her method, which is poisoning. Just as a quick reminder, Dorothea, actually, one of the few good things I can say about this whole series is like, if you want to get a very clear picture on what the dark triad can look like in a woman, this is a really great representation. And as a reminder, because we talked about dark triad in the past, that Mm -hmm. refers to a set of personality traits that are characterized in various levels by three main components, which is manipulation, callousness, and grandiosity. And callousness is a a nice way of saying 
saying no empathy whatsoever. And while it's not a diagnosis in itself, the traits of the dark triad are associated with psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. And people who exhibit these traits tend to be very selfish, very manipulative, and they are very comfortable employing deceitful tactics to get what they want. And generally, the more intelligent members of the population who have this constellation of factors can be quite successful criminals. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, very such she pulled her ruse for a long time. Another commonality of these people with dark triad is that they really lack empathy and they clearly have no regard for other people's feelings or their life or well-being. And years of research show that those with these traits are much more likely to engage in unethical behavior in their personal and professional lives. What's really interesting about all these vignettes in this documentary is that not all of them hit the dark triad. I agree. There are some other things going on here. As we always say, though, not all individuals who possess one or more of these traits at low levels will behave unethically or become criminals. The reason I want to take a moment here to emphasize this is because the first episode, there's a scene where they've been able to get two very key people. I thought that this was one of the, again, one of the few things I'll say that was well done. There's a detective who was on scene and he's still around mm -hmm. and he's giving a great interview mm -hmm. and the social worker slash case manager for one of Dorothy's victims. Yes. And you can tell that this woman to this day is just racked with guilt absolutely racked oh, yeah. with guilt oh, about yeah. placing a victim in Dorothea's clutches. But the main thing I wanted to say here is that this detective who broke the case does extensive interviews with Dorothea and he expresses the belief that in this one brief moment where she apologizes that he says, you know, in that moment, I, I really do believe that she felt remorse. And I would counter that she absolutely felt no remorse at all. And I think he really needs to to talk to somebody about that. Yeah, I would say that I because thought, like you, that was you pretty need, surprising. I was really surprised, but she was a true sociopath through and through, preying on the most vulnerable members of the, our population and turning her home into literally an abattoir and her backyard into a graveyard. It's, it's just chilling. But it's also her story has been presented better in other true crime docuseries. Agreed. Yeah. So if you're true crime buff at all, you've probably heard of her. They've called her the death house landlady and Dorothea murdered a number of people in the 80s in the Sacramento area. And you'd at least recognize her photo. I mean, and it's it's what they use for like the front, like poster cover for this series. Cute little old lady with great cheekbones, but total shark eyes, yeah. <laughs> like dead shark eyes. We're, we'll have to make a new graphic for her or something. Yeah. But like um, little silver curls, you know, that silver yeah. old lady haircut and big, you know, 1980s glasses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you you know, she was a pillar of the community in a lot of ways, not that she had a lot of like power necessarily herself politically, but as this person who was known to be very charitable and would put money behind some city officials and be recognized for her generosity and known as this elderly caregiver who would open up her home to a variety of folks with disability issues or who had no one else to care for them. For the neighborhood, she would have like, free burrito day, which just spoke to me. I mean, you know, that meme of like Pennywise, the clown in the gutter where it's like free student loans and you're calling in. 
This, she would just put up a sign that said there, free burrito there's a day. taco bar or burritos, you're there, right? <laughs> I'd be buried in her backyard in a hot second. But yeah, she was quite recognized for that. And again, like her generosity. And you mentioned the social worker that's interviewed because she starts to hear about this nice old lady that will kind of take whomever. And I mean, can we just talk about like the social workers in the 80s who were literally doing the Lord's work? with all the mental institutions that get shut down out there, you know, working with the homeless population, getting them resources, following up with them the way this woman would say that, you know, she would want to call to follow up and check on her people, just really people with huge, huge hearts. And this woman ends up placing Bert Montoya in Dorothea's house and eventually Bert goes missing. So they can't get a hold of him and they end up filing a missing persons report. You know, they start finding out that things are kind of hinky and the stories aren't adding up. So once the police get involved, they quickly find out about Dorothea's criminal history. She had a long standing history working in sex work. And then as a madam is the way that they sort of call it. And she actually did five years in federal prison for drugging people while pretending to be a nurse or a healthcare professional. And what she would do is she would have her little doctor's bag, essentially make these house calls, drug them. And then while they're in this state where they can't move or talk, she just goes about their home, taking their belongings and totally cleaning them out. So by the time she was running this caregiving home, which she was totally prohibited from being a caregiver, but knew the magic thing to say to take people in, she was on active federal parole during this time when she was running her con. And aside from that, she had been married like four times. So there was this variety of different monikers and names that again, kind of make it hard to keep track of someone in any of these systems. And you're thinking this is before computers too. So everything is just paper files. So one agency not talking to the other. It's it's not surprising. You know, she seems like she was a little bit above average intelligence and she was able to run this con for a long time. Yeah, exactly. She's run different cons. I mean, she talked about variety of criminal behavior. I feel like with each one of these stories, there's like one psychopathy trait in like bright lights that sort of stick out for me with each of them. And for her, it's the the versatility. I think, I think it's versatility of criminal behavior is the item on the psychopathy checklist because she's just kind of gone from thing to thing and it ended up with her poisoning her residents and killing them lots of times as they're pay for their money, that they would just be people that nobody cared about and would disappear and she would keep collecting their disability checks. So she does give the homicide, the detective that you were talking about, he works missing persons, but he's also works homicide. And he asks her like, Hey, can we like start digging up your backyard? Just gets her consent. And she says, yes, (laughs) as part of trying to keep her con going. And on day one, they find skeletal remains and eventually dig up seven bodies then you hear the stories of the other families. It was like so uncomfortably gross. I started laughing. So they're interviewing that detective when they get the permission to dig. So they go in the back and they start digging. And he, he says, yeah, I mean, first of all, like for us in today's day and age to think that a detective would just willy nilly go back and start digging that. Yeah. Brought his own shovel. Yeah. (laughs) But he starts, he goes, yeah, start pulling out some stuff. It's like jerky. 
and like you realize yeah. immediately that like he's pulling out big chunks of skin and then they show a picture of this big stack of stuff he goes i keep pulling i keep pulling I'm like oh my god mm -hmm. dude like you're gonna admit yeah. to basically just desecrating this corpse even further it's so sad well it is but you know what i mean i don't know if a lot of people would say like hey can i get consent to dig up your backyard he probably totally expected her to say no and True. that he'd have to come back get more evidence come back with some sort of search warrant and then a forensics team but i mean kind of went with his gut and yeah yeah and it, no and it, no gloves apparently it didn't look like he was using any protective <laughs> gear know, it was gross but yeah i mean the the rest of this episode kind of goes into the family members who had loved ones cross paths with Dorothea. And, you know, these weren't all just like totally like people who didn't have any family whatsoever. I mean, she was really brave. She was poisoning a woman whose family that would come and visit her almost every day. And then a man that she's like romantically linked with. And she was running a completely different con on that woman, the restaurant mm -hmm. con. Yeah. Yeah. They went into business together. So, you know, she had a definitely a a plan and a way in which she executed getting to these people's money and then eventually snuffing them out. So she, and she gets away at some point. She's like on little granny on the run for a little while. Cause you know, they're not keeping an eye on her. And I think my takeaway is that you can do anything if you look like a sweet old person. <laughs> and she actually played older than she was. Like she was at some point when she was actually in her fifties, she was telling people she was 65 and 70 and she looked the part. So I, that lets down, you know, a lot of people's guard with her, but eventually, you know, she was caught pretty quickly and she is tried and gets convicted of some of the murders, not all of them, unfortunately, and gets life without parole. And I think this episode was produced like a typical true crime documentary. You know, yeah. you got the video footage or the interview footage, you're following the investigation along, and then it, you have your closure at the end. And when you suggested this, and I had just seen sort of the poster image of her, I thought the whole series was about Dorothea. Oh, no, no, no. So then yeah. like I go to the next one, I was like, wait, what happened to the rest? <laughs> I thought we were going to learn more about Dorothea. So that is kind of the what you have to know going into this is you're just going to get not deep dives, just kind of hour long snapshots of each of these yeah. stories, I guess. Yeah, that's you definitely come away from all of these thinking that there's more to be told. Oh, so yeah. episode two is entitled Be Careful of the Quiet Ones. And this focuses on convicted murderer Casey Joy. After college student Maribel Ramos goes missing, the detectives turn on the people that are closest in her periphery. And that focus is on her roommate, a gentleman who was a good bit older than her named Casey Joy, who was the last person to have seen her alive. So Quang Choi, Casey Joy. So Quang Choi, also known as Casey, last name Joy, was the roommate of Maribel Ramos. Now, Ramos was a 36-year-old Iraqi war veteran. After serving eight years in the army, she was honorably discharged in 2008 and had plans to go to graduate school. She lived in an apartment in Orange, California, and she found that she would definitely need a roommate to cut expenses. And the documentary episode interviews a very close friend of Maribel's who was invited to move in with her. And one of the saddest moments in the episode is the friend telling Maribel, look, if you can't find anybody else, then we'll move in. But then yeah, by that's chance, really sad. I know there's a couple of those. I actually, moments. was it a friend or was it her sister? I think it was her sister, actually. Yeah. And she I remember I totally remember the story because it's Orange, California, but she was in the same criminal justice program that I was in at Cal State Fullerton, not the same time. I mean, this is like a decade after. Oh, I was wow. There. But, but yeah, she was that, I just remember it on the news when she was missing and, you know, being a criminal justice student and being an, an army veteran, 
you know, was really kind of stood out about this woman. Yeah, she seems to be like, I mean, I, I wanted to know more about her, but you definitely come away from watching mm -hmm. this knowing that she was really an impressive young woman. I mean, yeah. really, really impressive. But she needs a roommate to keep her expenses under control. So she puts an ad on Craigslist and she connects with KC. And like I said, he is older than her. He's quiet, very withdrawn. But Maribel has a lot of close family and interpersonal relationships, and she is very clearly a kind and very compassionate person with a great open demeanor. And mm -hmm. she makes an enormous effort to include Casey and in all of her family gatherings and parties. And he's noted to be standoffish and socially awkward, but the family really takes him in and invites him to a lot of yeah. things. And this is one of those documentaries where they're able to show all these different pictures of him being at these events. But at one point, Casey calls Maribel's sister to confess to her that he's in love with Maribel. And Maribel's sister says, She's trying to be really realistic with KC about the very, very clear differences in their lives, their lifestyles, their ages, and, and really pointing out how incompatible that they really are. And instead of taking this information in and then moving on with his life, KC then goes back to the apartment and confesses his love to Maribel. And she does her best to let him down easily. But KC, however, goes on a mission based on the information that he got from Maribel's sister to make himself more attractive to Maribel. And he goes so far as to have facial plastic surgery to look younger, as well as getting this really big tiger tattoo on yeah. his right arm and shoulder. I mean, he went like for having for someone with no tattoos, he went really big out the gate with sort of, it looked like a standard one that you would see like on the wall, like you point your finger at yeah. something and say, I want that one. The tiger tattoo you want, you'll get a better one. No, mine would be much better <laughs> if I was brave enough to get it. But I will say this, He'd got some one really day. good surgery. Like once the swelling went down, that surgery was actually really good. He looked about 15 years younger. It was impressive. Yeah. yeah. It's that Orange County surgery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but after he makes these efforts, he again professes his affections to her and the refusal leads to more arguments. So Maribel has a boyfriend and Paul, her boyfriend, tells the authorities that she had gotten into an argument with KC because he had not paid the rent that month and she wanted him out of her place. And the episode plays Maribel's really heart-wrenching call to 911, where you can tell she is really, really scared. And oh she's trying gosh, to hold it so together. Sad. She says she's in fear for her life following an argument with KC. And she describes him as being her roommate who's supposed to move out at the end of the month. So on May 3rd, 2013, KC called to report that Maribel had not come home the previous night, leading her family to report her missing because they'd not been able to reach her either. And around 8.30 on May 2nd, sometime after her call with Paul, Maribel was seen on a surveillance video from the apartment complex as she was dropping off her rent check. And this was the last time she was seen alive. And when questioned by the police, KC admitted to arguing with Maribel, but said that he de-escalated himself by going out for a drive at around 9 p.m. And when he returned, she wasn't there. So there was no evidence directly connecting KC with her disappearance, but he did have scratches on his arm and he came up with a really good almost legitimate excuse for having the scratches yeah. on his arm. And the way he delivers the response is like super casual and like, oh yeah, uh -huh. I mean, it, and he was a really good liar there. Yeah, but I'm sorry. When someone says they went for a drive and they didn't go anywhere, they just drove. It's bullshit every time. Every time. <laughs> and these detectives know that. Every I mean, time. They, they yeah, know yeah. it. Yeah. So while he's like superficially cooperative with the police, they really realize something's going on. They surveil his movements and they're looking at all this camera. They find out that he at least is savvy enough not to use his home computer IP address. And he takes his laptop to the public library 
where he can access. And of course, they go right in, do a search on his search history and all, all of your typical crime things of like, how long does it take somebody to die? How to get rid of a body, all these things. But that yeah. alone is not enough until he logs on to Google Earth or Google Maps and specifically keeps going to one tree on a rural road in a park in uh, mm -hmm. like a hiking area. A trail, so yeah. ding, 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 everybody's alarms go off. They send a search party out there. And within, I think, even just a half an hour, they find yep. Mirabelle's remains under the very tree that he was looking at specifically on the map. So Casey was charged with the killing and then found guilty of second degree murder. Before he received a sentence, he said, family wants me to apologize, which I cannot apologize, which I haven't done. Maybe someday the truth will come out. Maybe I'll just die inside prison. Oh, geez. Very interesting. I, I think that one of the problems for me in this particular episode is that he there's a real lack of depth in looking at his background. Like they don't pay any attention yeah. to it all. He has no friends. He has no family. Well, you could have, no, that's not true. There's some story there. Tell us about what yeah. kind of work he was doing. Tell us about how he had lost his job. Like I, I really wanted to know yeah. how he got to this point because it does, this is one of those things where somebody seems like they snapped, but again, yes. there was a lot of stuff building up and they, this documentary gives us no information about yeah. it building up like for him. Two just little snippets of his sister says, yes, he has an anger problem, <laughs> but yeah, I would love anything. to know about his work history. I For did sure. think the the really interesting thing was because you didn't get a, a chance to hear recordings of him in his regular interactions with people because apparently he oh, had right. perfect English and a very, very minor accent. Mm -hmm. But when he's being interrogated by the detectives, progressively his English gets worse and worse. And he starts saying that he can't, he starts pretending that he doesn't understand the questions that are being yeah. asked. So that just seems like sort of a, a, an effort on his part to seem maybe unable to communicate or maybe making it more difficult for them to do their work. So I don't have a lot to go on here diagnostically. I can't even say whether or not sure. KC has specific dark triad qualities certainly has an anger problem, mm -hmm. certainly has some deficits in social skills, but the overall impression is somebody with really, really poor ability to read situations and understand how he fits into the social world and, and really realistic looking at what a, a relationship with somebody could be like. I mean, there's someone that's much younger than you. She's got a plan, yeah. a path. So for him, it's almost delusional for him to think that exactly that he could impress her and, you know, they could have this relationship. It's it's somewhat delusional and actually very sad, although that doesn't justify his horrific, horrific crime. It would just would have been interesting to even mention what his previous worst history was, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that would have been way more interesting. And I still, you know, a longer documentary or deeper dive on this would have given us more about Maribel, which I also, I, I thought her sister and her niece did such a great job talking about oh, her yeah. and, and how as a family, they just wouldn't let up because they were so highlighting this throughout media and campaigns and awareness when she was missing that they think that's what triggered him to go and like, look at this Google maps. And did he think like her body was going to show up on Google maps and he kept looking for it or like, what? <laughs> like, oh, does he know how Google maps works? <laughs> you but, know, it could have those satellite yeah. images, you know, he was, he kept pushing in and pushing in on a satellite mm -hmm. image. It could have been at some point when those images are renewed something could have showed. True, but, true. Um, yeah. 
I don't think, I wouldn't say dark triad, like hitting all of those either. Delusional, a flavor of that for sure. And just an obsession with her to where he thought he could make it work and get what he wanted. And it just, it is, it's so sad when you hear that 911 call because you know she feels it in her gut. And it happened. Yeah. Mm. So sad. So here's the thing. This is the, the thing that when we charted off about how terrible a, a title this is, is that these are not all roommate situations. The first episode is a landlord. She's not a roommate. Dorothea yes. was a landlord. So we will give at least some credit to episode two being about a roommate. But now we're going into episode we three, Marathon Man, which is again about a crooked landlord. So this story focuses on charismatic athlete Yusef Qatar. He commits fraud across several countries and he has a series of schemes that culminate in violent attacks on multiple people. And he was a man who claimed to be a Palestinian man from Denmark. He was not Palestinian mm-hmm. as it is later emerges in the story. Yeah. I think although like extremely troubling, this was, I don't know why this was the least interesting to me. I felt like it was all over the place. So I think it was the storytelling. I think it was the organization aspect. of it because I, there are elements yeah. of it that are really chilling and kind of amazing. Yes. The resilience of some of the characters and it just oh all feels gosh. tossed away. Yeah, I think they tried too hard to bounce back and forth between victims and stories and narratives. And it just left you feeling like, okay, this is too chaotic. I can't even be interested in it. But essentially it takes place in Chile and it starts off with an American woman who moves down there, Callie, and she ends up finding housing in what's like a hostel is what she calls it and what they called it down there. But it was really more permanent type housing for a lot of international residents. And one of the other residents is this man, Yusuf, who says he's from Denmark, as well as people from all over. And he claims to be this extreme athlete, this extreme runner, which red flag overachiever, (laughs) but he's like extreme about everything. And she's, she sees a pretty much through the bullshit where he's this storyteller about heroic deeds. And she talks about Not necessarily like calling him out on it, but letting it be known that she's not falling for all of this. Yeah, she's not she's not buying his bullshit at all. Yeah, yeah. And when when she kind of lets that known to him, it's like she sees this dark flash change over him where that charismatic light kind of goes out for a moment. And she she gets this little piece of the darker side of him. So. Essentially, he had devised this plan to rip off all of his housemates in saying that he had purchased some property and that he was going to rent it out to them because, you know, their living situation isn't that great. He also had claimed that he had been sponsored by the Federation of Palestine that is basically funding athletes around the world. And because he's this extreme runner, he was going to do this big, like crazy 2,600 mile race. And so the 33-year-old had been sponsored by Carlos Medina and Carlos Kraus, members of Federacion Palestinia to run the race. And he's given $8,000 to do so. And they're expecting like, yes, this guy's going to like hold up the Palestinian flag and cross the finish line. And like on day one, they see he's in first place. And then he tells them that he had to drop out. He got disqualified because of an injury. And so this really you know, obviously is a downer for them, but they understand because he's an athlete. So these things sort of happen, but then it 
continues to snowball. So I already feel confused just talking about this because there's like multiple things going on already. Yeah, this is one of those that you're talking about. It's back and forth because you got the people he's ripping off to just get money by pretending to be an athlete, although very good yeah. looking guy, like, you know, yeah, and fit, very fit, big you know, electric kilowatt smile. And, but again, every single picture, shark eyes, just complete totally. shark eyes. Right. So after the weather cools and the hostel residents realize like, wow, there's no heat in here and there's no hot water. He comes up with that con for them that he's going to rent to them these condos that he was able to have purchased. And even right. Callie is like, wait, how that you were living in a hostel? How were you able to yeah, buy these? You're not even but, a resident here. What's yeah, going on? Okay. Let's figure it out. So, but he gets them to give him thousand dollar security deposits. So they go out to dinner with him and one goes home. And so he tells Callie that, Hey, there's a burned out building in around this neighborhood where there's a golden toilet seat. Let's go look for it. And she's like, Oh, okay, let's go. Which I, I love her because she's just so such a strong character, but I'm like, mm -hmm. are you kidding me? Like it's the middle of the night you've been drinking and this guy's skeevy and you're going to go look for a golden toilet seat, whatever. But he lures her into a burned out tire shop in Santiago and then hits her over the head with a non-golden toilet seat and knocks yeah. her out, you know, really, really splits open the back of her head thinking he's killed her. Then he covers her in like all of the shit that's on the floor of the tire shop. It's like motor oil yeah. and dirt, all these horrible, horrible caustic substances. And like wraps her in a tarp. And wraps her up in a tarp. Oh. Thankfully, he didn't realize that she survived and she woke mm. up a few hours later, you know, with all this crap in her eyes and she's able to wriggle her way out and basically oh covered in soot and blood, make her way back to the hostel, which is just kind of amazing. I mean, this was one of the most jarring and interesting parts of the story. And she is not someone you'd mess with because I think that she comes yeah. across as very, very resilient. So another character in this story who's been ripped off by him goes into a deep dive and finds out that he has has a criminal past. He's been arrested in Denmark in 2009 for all sorts of different frauds, but he's never shown up for any of his court dates. And in January 2011, he was wanted there for arson, embezzlement, forgery, and fraud. So he had briefly served in the Danish Marines, but he was dishonorably discharged at the age of 28 due to fraud. Yes. So after years of evading the law, Cutter is finally apprehended in Chile on August 9th. Chilean police set up a sting operation. And really, I mean, none of this wouldn't happen if Kelly hadn't hooked up with this female attorney from Chile who was right. like newly licensed and actually saw this like on Facebook or something where they were talking about this guy. And she's like, oh, <laughs> I need more experience prosecuting cases. Maybe I can find this victim and help her, which was just like uh, amazing because when Kelly first reported that he had tried to kill her and bury right. her. The police did nothing. So they didn't do um, anything. Yeah. I mean, here she is. She's, no. she's there getting interviewed. Her eyes are like bleeding because of all the crap yeah. that's in them. She's got a gash on the back of her head and the Chilean police are, or the Santiago police are like, mm, no, mm, not enough. We're not going to, yeah. we're not going to pursue this. So it ends up like, again, the Chilean police set up the sting operation using a woman to send him a wire transfer. And because he's like on the run and they're finally getting these, charges filed against him. They can't really find him. So this is how they they find him is lure him in with money, basically. So he initially denies responsibility for the attack on Kelly and later ends up confessing to hitting her over the head, but claims he did not intend to kill her. So he's found guilty of oh, attempted murder. That makes it all okay. <laughs> 
and fraud, and it results in a sentence of 541 days in prison. However, he had already served more than half of his sentence while awaiting trial and would be released a year from then. And then he was extradited to Denmark to face five additional charges. So after being acquitted of three of those five charges in Denmark, he's released from prison after only three months. However, his criminal activities did not end there. Surprise, surprise. And in 2014, he was wanted by police in Costa Rica for allegedly seducing a Canadian traveler, stealing hmm. her life savings of about $19,000. Oof. And attempting to smother her with a pillow when she found out his true identity. So there's story after story of people catching on to him and then he just tries to kill them. Although he's not, <laughs> he's not very good at his attempts to kill people. Yeah, I mean, this is going to sound so objectifying, but you know, the guy, he like, you know, doors open for good looking people. And if he sure. had been smart, he could have gotten away with these things, but he keeps tripping himself up. And for like weirdly small amounts of money, yeah. like, you know, yeah. he's not here. I am going, dude, you should have thought big. I mean, I don't mean that by any means because he's a terrible person and he, you know, attempted to kill people. It also seems yeah. like he probably is just more street smart. And one again, mm -hmm. one of the most tragic things, which is very reminiscent of the tender swindler is that they... Mm -hmm make contact with his family members and his sister yes. is just like we we don't have any contact with them anymore he's a terrible person he's like stolen from all of us very reminiscent of when they confront totally. the tender swindler's elderly mother it's very very yes. sad so he continues to this day to use false identities. He's used the name Joseph Carter. And a couple of times he convinced a Texan resident to place a $3,500 order for sportswear and then offered to supply a batch of discounted mobile phones. I okay. just like all these kind of low end griffs. Yeah. And of course he never follows through with them. So it's always just seeming like one smallish chunk of cash lives on that until he's about out. And then he has to find another scam to run. But despite his criminal history, he continued to engage in his criminal activities, but he must have gone deep into hiding with no recent reports on his whereabouts. So like yeah. the Tinder swindler, or he's still out there, but he's not showing his face like the Tinder swindler is. I wouldn't be surprised if he crossed the wrong person and he's in a ditch somewhere. That could have happened. Yeah. He could have pissed off smart. the wrong people. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Well, and then that leads us to our last story, which are episodes four and five, because they put this into two parts. It's called Roommate Wanted. And for me, I thought this was the most chilling, scary tale here. Yeah. I, I don't, again, I don't know. All these stories are really horrific, but I don't know if it's just sort of production wise. But this is a story of a serial squatter who takes advantage of unsuspecting people in a number of ways to find places to live and then really take them away, like make his own with very little effort, which is terrifying. I mean, the whole like serial squatter thing is just these stories are just weird. To me, this is another example of something that could have been its own series and been fascinating. Yes. Because yes. the serial squatter phenomenon is really bad in this country. Because I'm not going to say that there aren't terrible landlords. There are some awful landlords out there. I'll be the first to admit it. I'm going through something right now that is just griping my ass so bad with my previous <laughs> landlord. But the serial squatter thing across this country is bad. When people establish residency, you cannot get rid of them. And there are mm -hmm. grifters out there that absolutely know every single in and out of the law about this issue. And this was one of them. Yes. He was so good at sizing up the perfect victim. Very dark triad vibes. I mean, again, when I think of like 
the trait that jumps out to me from the psychopathy checklist. He's the epitome of that psychopathic parasite. I mean, there's like no better term for him than parasite. So this starts off with a woman who's being encouraged to get her own place by her mom. Like it's time to move out and get out on your own. And she secures a place, but then really needs a roommate to make it work. And yet again, puts an ad on Craigslist, which again, total takeaway from this series. Like, okay, I understand it's an option, but ladies don't get men to move into your apartments that you find on Craigslist. I I completely agree with you. And I'm uncomfortable that I'm agreeing because I don't want to think that way about male-female dynamics. But I think most importantly, you just don't go into a roommate situation unless you can vet them, unless you've got some kind of background check. You just don't do it. I mean, that was my experience that I've spoken about on previous episodes. I I was ripped off really badly by somebody who was a complete con man. Yeah. Yeah. So this Norman Bates looking dude answers the ad and has his story all laid out. He's a law school grad. He needs a place for a while. Super nice and charming. He has a dog with him and needs a place for his dog whom he loves so much. And really there's indicators right away. I mean, he doesn't fill out the lease forms, the background check forms that she needs him to just kind of sit on the table forever. He starts weirdly like moving furniture, which is something he did with more than one person. And to me, that was the creepiest thing where people would just come home and their shit is just moved around and rearranged. And I'm like, what the frick is that about? Well, in the, the example, the first example, he takes her dining room chairs yeah. into his room to make a desk. <laughs> yeah. To make a desk and chair set for him. And then in his excuses, well, you're not using, you only need two. I mean, it's just this weird, See, it's interesting. Like I, I get the, all the stuff with the dark triad. I think the predominant drive here was narcissism. Like I think he's from, hmm. we find out later he's from a, a successful family where, yep. you know, there's a lot of success in his siblings and he's the one that could just never, never follow through. He could never yep. be successful. He was his own worst enemy, but certainly, I mean, a narcissism alone is not going to turn somebody into a murderer, which is what happens with this guy. So basically you start getting to hear from others in his life, from various eras of his, you know, development, chapters of his life. And you realize that he's done this too. But then they go even further back though, to one of his childhood friends who knew him as like a really great person. And then Mm -hmm. noted that there was like a big shift in high school. Like he really just made a complete personality change. They talked to a couple of people he was romantically linked to. Those were tragic stories, completely built and and used that woman as well. But essentially he knows the laws around landlord tenant relationships better than any of the roommates. And probably they indicate here better than most attorneys. Like he really, really knows what's going on and how he can get away with everything. There's an example of Sonia in the Rockaway Beach apartment. Apartment in Queens. You wrote this as a note in the margins, and I completely agree with you. I <laughs> had that same sentiment. This is a woman who had scraped and saved being a veterinary tech to buy her dream home. And it was a new condo development <laughs> on the beach. It was a beautiful view yeah. of a, you know, an East Coast ocean view. It was very, very, you just got that this woman had worked so hard, but she had to get a roommate. And he completely fucks it up for her. And yeah, I I want yep. it. It was like, can I send her some money? <laughs> like, I know I, I want to buy that apartment I, I for her. <laughs> 
because she's she very resilient, but also one of these that I think when you're in a situation, you don't always use the best judgment. Don't make yeah. major life decisions when you're desperate. That is just never yeah. the time to do mm -hmm. it. And that's what he preys on. That's what there's like this 100%. prey on is they, they see when they're in a hard situation and that's when they jump in. Very, very sad. He had a lot of other ways that he was calculating as well as being odd. He went and got a job as a history teacher for elementary school kids. Yeah. And he was crazy harsh and demanding for elementary school kids. And he really thought that he was going to be the dean of the school. Like he just had mm -hmm. this grandiose sense of self and what he was capable of doing. Now he had finished law school. You know, he really was an accomplished academic in that way, but he gets into Okay, you do get a really great story from the introductory roommate. She says, okay, I'm going to turn the tables on him. I'm going right. to throw a, a party that never ends. And she has everybody come over to her house and they're smoking and drinking and you know trying to drive him out, which doesn't work, unfortunately. But then he also knows how to screw with landlords, like how to ruin the property. It has these very Pacific Heights vibes to it where Michael Keaton played the terrible, terrible tenant that is you know, pushes mm -hmm. people to the edge so that they lash out at him physically, then he can put a restraining order on them. Well, this actually happens. I mean, it's interesting that for all of his lack of interpersonal skills and failures in life, he really knows how to create a strategy and make it work. And he does it several times. Just really, really strange guy. Yeah. I mean, the way that he would like, you know, I, I understand sort of the messing with your roommate and trying to establish residency and then take it out from underneath them. Like that's a direct like goal and motive for this twisted person. But then he would just like fuck with the landlords and leave the water running all the time. So the bill would go up for the landlord, throwing cat litter out the window onto, you know, the yard, walking around with a log and just dropping it. So the yeah. tenants below him, like complete terrorist, like that's just the word that kept coming to my head was complete terrorist. Yeah. And as one of the landlords said, he was a brilliant psycho. Yeah, I <laughs> Going agree. back to looking like Norman Bates. <laughs> so in, in 2017, with the woman that they started out with, the one that ends up turning the tables and kind of having this party and trying to at least get some reaction out of him, hopefully to get him to leave, she does certainly get a reaction out of him because he gets to the point where he's so upset with her about that party that he strangles her and then cuts her like slashes at her leg with a knife that he had as he's like bashing the door into her leg. So he does get arrested for that. He gets bailed out by this mystery brother. Then they're exchanging information in a police parking lot because now there's a restraining order in place. And he tells her because she had his dog adopted by a friend, he tells her that she's going to regret that, that she's a dead bitch, you know, all this stuff. So she goes right back into the police station, makes that report. He gets arrested and picked up again for violating the restraining order. And his brother bails him out again. And at this time, he's kind of reconnected with that old friend that you were talking about, where they're at least talking on Facebook and texting. And he really starts some leakage, like venting to his friend about how angry he is with his brother, this brother that has just bailed him out twice. Right. And, you know, start saying some things that are kind of goodbyes, like you'll probably never hear from me again, like these sort of things. And you just realize it's building up. And he ends up going to his brother's home, murdering his brother there. They track him to a hotel room because he now has left 
in his brother's clothes and taken his credit cards. And when the SWAT team makes entry into the hotel room where he's hiding out, he comes at them with an ax and cuts two officers, hits one in the face. Shockingly, they took him into custody with no deadly force being used. And he ends up hanging himself in the jail before his court date. And you could just tell how much unresolve is there as far as justice goes for all the victims who are finally going to see him get his day in court. And that's um, actually, and, and that's why I, I lean so heavily towards the predominance of narcissism in him. Oh yeah. Like that hanging yourself, like to, to make sure that nobody gets any resolve yeah. is like the last yeah. fuck you to the victims. No, totally. Your, you know, your words about narcissism were really echoing in my head as I was watching this. Cause as the friend is talking about like, you know, he was so smart and we just like, we're on top of the world as we were graduating high school and he goes off to college and all of these like expectations are on him. And he ends up witnessing a murder in college, which oh, the legitimately, said, yeah. Yeah. Like the friend said, ended up being kind of that turning point where he really changed. And then just like success went out the window. And to me, that like empty vessel was totally there. I, maybe even before, you know, he had witnessed this traumatic event. I feel like there was so much buildup and expectation from his parents, from his grandparents, from his brother being successful. Yeah. And when he just couldn't meet that standard, he just kind of went with the skill set that he had. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's a really good point. I mean, also the, I won't go into it now, but the, the crime that he witnessed was not just like a run of the mill, somebody getting beaten up. It was brutal, really, really yeah. brutal crime that yeah. he witnessed. So interesting exactly. coming back. So here we are wrapping all this up. I give it 1.5 brains. I'm even going to take it down 50%. And I usually, you know, <laughs> you know me, I'm the, I'm the one that's like usually very like very, very forgiving with these documentaries. But I was disappointed on several levels. There are things here that are structurally and narratively wrong, as well as being somewhat incorrect or misleading. First of all, like I said, they're not all roommates. And half the examples, Mm -hmm. they're landlords that are intentionally targeting unsuspecting victims for purposes of financial abuse or financing their lives. And the other two examples, while yeah, focusing on roommate situations does fit the description more aptly. I think Dorothea's story has been told so many times before with a lot more depth. Second, you know, I think that there are plenty of really awful, literally life-changing and terrible roommate stories where you don't have to resort (laughs) to it being a murder, right? Right, that's true, just just, terrifying. Yeah, there's plenty. I mean, I think that, you know, serial squatters, like you're saying themselves, like I would see, I'd watch a documentary on tons of vignettes on that because it's terrifying. There was like one- I was thinking, oh my God, we could have done an episode on this. <laughs> well, maybe we should. We, you know what we could do yeah. is one, the one, the case out of New York. There was a serial squatter out of New York. That's what we'll do. We'll put it on our list, folks. And if you okay. have other examples okay. in listening, let us know. Also, <laughs> the animations, they use a oh. lot of animations to fill in. And while I, while I admire it, the effort, it looks pretty cheap and they're unintentionally funny. I mean, Archer. <laughs> You know, it's almost like the Archer cartoon. <laughs> yeah. And in the story of Casey, there's barely any story at all. So trying to lengthen that piece into a standalone episode just doesn't feel fair to Maribel. 
you know, True. that was such an amazing young woman. They basically say, you know, he had no friends, no family. And it's like, no, you could have fleshed him out more. I'm, I'm sure there was more. And while the series does get to interviews with survivors and journalists, it feels odd that there's really no framework for addressing what could have been done. And there's, you know, okay, here's a huge point of my bias is why didn't you get like mental health professionals or profilers in there to give commentary Shocking. on this stuff. I'm not shilling for a job for me and Dr. Shiloh. I'm just saying there's a lot of people out no, there you. that could have offered like some really interesting perspective on these. So what about you? What'd yeah. you rate it? Well, I mean, those are very well put together thoughts. Yeah, it just, it feels all over the place. Some of those could have been extended out. Some there wasn't enough. Then like, why did they pick that last one to make two parts? Yeah. I don't know. Very I'm gonna hasty. give it half. I'm going to give it half a brain. I don't know if I want the left side or the right side, just cut oh. it right down the, the corpus callosum and pick a side, but half a brain for me, I'm going to dub it the worst docuseries ever. Okay, good. <laughs> but so we watched it for you folks. You don't have to go yes. and watch it. You got you, a nice you don't recap have to watch here it. and maybe, yeah, we can flush this out into a episode on serial squatters. Cause I don't know. It's just, that was the scariest story and how just like smart these folks are about it. And I think someone said he knew more than the court did, more than yeah. the judge did about this. So those are terrifying. And uh, there you go. Another docuseries you don't have to watch. Oh, we covered it for you. <laughs> we got it for you. Okay. Right, gosh. I think that's it, everyone. This is great. Thank you so much for hanging with us. Like you could tell we got a little bit worked up on how bad this was and how it could have been better. And we don't, didn't feel like the victims really got enough fleshing out or motivations. And we love to explore the motivations. But again, visit us on all of our social media to see all of the wonderful things that are coming up for us in the next month. I'm very yeah. excited about all of these. We hope to see everybody at Heritage Square Museum. If you're local, please considering coming out and joining us for a wonderful evening. That's also going to include a ghost tour. We always have to remember that at Heritage Square. And we'll be covering Macabre Mansions. It's a great, great setting and story for LA Not So Confidential, LA Meekly, and Holly Weird Paranormal. And folks, we're going to wrap it up and we will see you next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye. Take care. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, 
and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks.